everyone. Um, thanks so much for coming, uh, coming along at lunchtime. Um, we're not going to get to grips with all the tiny detail of all the data in the National People's Database, mainly because there's just too much. Um, but it is going to be a double header, and the reason why, well, one of the reasons why Terry is here is that Terry actually is probably the person who has been watching the National Pupil Data Database most closely, um, probably except for people inside the department, for many years now. Uh, she used to run, Terry used to run Action on Rights for Children, uh, defending children's rights, children's data rights. And so Terry's going to sort of step in to give you a lot of the, the detail. But the basic principle from which we start is that, and I think I'm correct in saying that this is what the um, Open Data Institute also believes, personal data is not open data. Yeah? It just ain't. Now, that's obviously going to color everything. If you think differently, then you know, we may have a, a discussion. But I cannot work from any other basis than personal data is not open data. My understanding of open data is it's exposing, making transparent the machinery, not the people. Anyway, Terry is going to give you a bit of the background. Rome is seen as basically legislative underpinning, but <laughs> in it's not, not as bad as it looks. And it is important in this case because I think one of the aspects of open data that's very important is how the data was collected um, and whether it was collected in an open process. Now, the problem we have with the National Pupil Database is that it came into being with very little scrutiny. Um, the Education Act 1996 put in a provision that um, gave the government power to collect school-level data. So this was aggregate data to allow them to plan, no problem at all with that. The following year in 97, a new another Education Act um, gave the power to collect attainment data from pupils. And Okay, well, that, that's, that's fair enough. Then 1998, there was a very large Education Act came, in, um, uh, came through Parliament, the School Standards and Framework Act. It was a massive act, and it ran through about 35 schedules, I think. And into the 30th schedule, uh, at committee stage, the final committee stage, 21st committee stage, in the evening, this amendment was introduced um, to allow the collection of personal data about pupils. And everyone was tired, and I think in 1997-98, um, politicians probably didn't realize the gravity uh, of changing aggregate data into a personal data collection. Um, and so I think Theresa May merely commented that it replaced a couple of lines of text with 28 lines of text in the schedule, and then it went through. There was no further attention paid to it in Parliament or in the Lords, and the Act went through and allowed the National Pupil Database to be created. What the Act did was to create a statutory gateway um, that allowed the data to be collected without um, any need for head teachers. I think my music moved on, actually. Um, without any, any need for head teachers to seek consent. And the idea was that the, the data would come straight off the school management system um, once a year at the time. It was then called the annual school census. And 
parents and children were completely unaware of what was happening. They were not asked the consent at any stage. And in fact, at the time, we were contacted by several head teachers who were quite alarmed at the implications. And they wrote to the department, uh, and uh, an FAQ was issued which said, you don't need to ask consent, um, and um, we will take the data. Nobody needs to know anything about this. It doesn't matter. You have a duty to supply it. And so that's the way it came about. And parents and children weren't told at all initially. I think it was around 2007, 2008 that the Information Commissioner finally said you should be issuing fair processing notices when you take this data. So at least that's done now. But certainly the data collection, um, what have I got on my next slide? Just in case I thought and then the slide comes up and I've already said it. Yes. Um, the, the other problem um, we have is that the amendment to the School Standards and Framework Act allowed the Minister, Secretary of State, to define in regulations what data would be collected. Um, so it was, to some extent, a, a bit of a blank check. And what we've seen is a steady increase in the amount of data that's taken. Uh, the original school census, CLAS, it was called, People-Level Annual School Census, was carried out in January and took relatively low levels of, of data about people. The census is now taken termly, and it's extended from state schools to preschool providers. Um, anyone who is looking after a child who is paid for by the state, so it may be in, in private provision with a childminder in a place that is funded by the state. And we've seen this, this steady increase um, to include things like exclusions with a code for the reasons for exclusion. That's something that's always worried me um, because exclusions are carried out on a basis of probability. Does a head teacher believe the behaviour more than likely has occurred than not? And then this forms part of a permanent record. Um, there, there's um, uh, entitlement to free school meals. At times, I don't know if it's on this year's, but mode of travel to school was collected. And so it seems to be this whole system of data collection seems to be whatever it's needed to be at the time. So if we are worrying about people cluttering up the streets with their cars, we start collecting mode of travel to school. And um, it seems, as I say, a gift that keeps on giving. And there are huge amounts of data on this system in what is a permanent record that will never be deleted and nobody has ever consented to having this data uploaded in the first place. So that's essentially the gateway is that a law is passed which puts a requirement on someone which within the Data Protection Act there is allow allowances made or ex exceptions made with regard to consent having to be gathered. Yeah, you don't yeah? Have to get so it's just literally the law says, um, so we have it. So um, I don't intend to go through this line by line. We'd be here all year. Um, but this is just a glimpse of, and you can download this yourself from the Department for Education's National Pupil Database website. Uh, this is just an indication of, it's a very large, I think it's a three megabyte spreadsheet 
uh, just containing the descriptions of the fields that are in the National People Database. Uh, this is one that's called CIN. This is Children in Need. Uh, this is collected uh, 8, 9, 10, 11, um, 2000. Um, and you'll see there's some pretty sort of um, sensitive stuff in here. Uh, yeah, asylum seeking, uh, categories of abuse, neglect, physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, multiple abuse. Uh, this is not anything but highly sensitive data. Um, however, the way that it's been set up, and looking at what the department's done, and looking at the way that they've handled it, this was created for, broadly speaking, administrative purposes. So they've engineered a system around it, a system of requests and data flows, which, certainly as far as we've seen, looks to be about okay. It could be a little bit more transparent, it could have slightly better governance, but actually, you've engineered something where you know, a data and statistics division takes in requests, they can look at the requests, which are basically coming from academics or people who uh, you know, are authorized to make those sorts of requests, and they can basically authorize um, flows of data from these structured tiers, which I'll come to in a minute. However, the more sensitive stuff gets escalated up to a special panel, which will look at those requests in detail. This little sort of faded out arrow here is showing a data flow. Once, once a request has actually been authorized by this more serious scrutiny panel, the data management advisory panel, if it's sort of an annual flow, for example, and it has happened before, then these guys can reauthorize that the following year. But there is a good level of scrutiny. Unfortunately, there's no independent body. This is just drawn from sort of like department heads within the organization. So there's no external independent members of that panel. And then they've, they've done a pretty good job, I think, uh, in terms of sort of structuring the categories of data that they've got. You will notice that all categories are considered to be identifiable, all of them. So you've got individual pupil level stuff, but that will not necessarily sort of um, give a, a huge amount of information, they think. Uh, things like gender, attainment, absences. Then you've got some of the aggregate school data, which Terry was talking about that where it started. But of course, if you're looking at school data, you are sometimes going to get you know, unique individuals or very small numbers of individuals being identified by particular things. So if you've got single counts, that's potentially you know, something that could be sensitive data, which could pop up just because it's just one person. Tier two, you're starting to get into the sorts of information about a person which they've thought to try to obfuscate in some way. So ethnicity, full ethnicity, is considered tier one data. Recoded ethnicity is considered tier two. I'm not sure that that's a huge distinction. I'm pretty sure everyone knows what an IC1 male is, for example. You know, working out what their coding system is cracks that. I'm not entirely sure that recoded ethnicity is something that um, is that different. But you've got things like special needs, free school meals, that is considered to be tier two. It's identifiable and sensitive. Again, one I might argue over defini definition. Tier one is stuff that's identifying. Name, date of birth, address, plainly identifying. Uh, or identifiable and highly sensitive. As I say, that includes stuff like ethnicity and what Terry mentioned, reasons for exclusion. The reasons for exclusion. You know, something that is going to basically 
carry along, you know, carry along with you in this permanent record for the rest of your life. Yeah, this is never deleted. So, why are we here? <laughs> I'm here because I got to talk to Jenny about a consultation that happened a little bit before Christmas. In fact, in the run-up to Christmas. In fact, really quickly in the run-up to Christmas, a consultation about widening access to the National Pupil Database. Widening. Um, our government is getting transparent. <coughs> They're using the term open a lot. And they put out a consultation proposing to increase the purposes for which, or by increasing the purposes for which data could be used, increasing the numbers of people, the types of people who could use the data in the National Pupil Database. So, top figure of the quote, this is what was said before Christmas. Data will only be released by organisations that have been through a robust approvals process. We don't know whether that's any more robust than the one I showed you before. If it isn't, well, you know, we've got problems with governance and transparency. I think they've engineered a pretty decent system, as I say, for administrative data for internal use only and going only and exclusively to the academy. What they haven't done is engineer a system for getting this stuff out in the wild or opening it up in that way. However, Jenny pointed me just this week to more language in another consultation about school transparency this time. We'll achieve this through making information from the National People Database available to all. That's interesting. Um, okay, we're putting appropriate safeguards in place, but this is now opening it wide out. And you'll see, I've just put what I think, uh, you know, taken some of the language from the consultations about the people that they have listed. But if they're listing those people, they're also including a whole bunch of other people as well. So yes, of course, educational publishers and developers who could possibly have a concern about these people. They say uh, commercial and non-profit organisations, that's profit-driven enterprises for you, going and looking at kids' data. Um, researchers, well, so what about direct marketers? And think about if this stuff is open and is permanently available, what about people who bear a grudge or bully? Yeah? What about the media and celebrities' children? and things like that. I mean, you might say, okay, well, so these kids can go to private school, it's all right for them. I don't think that's all right. I don't think that's all right at all. Anyway, handing back to Terry, we're going to look at... The identification is quite interesting because it isn't... Um, th there isn't a fixed set of rules you can apply, and I'm probably teaching all to cut edge. It depends on who you are, what you are, and where you are. Um, I, I was saying to Phil this morning, it struck me that one of my sons could be very easily identified on the National Pupil Database because he happened to be within uh, the borough in which we were living in London at the time, quite a, a unique combination of A-levels. If you know the four A-levels he did and how weird a combination they are, um, you will know where he is now, what he's doing, what happened. You will have uh, have a way into his entire inglorious school record. <laughs> but um, outside urban areas, unfortunately, a lot of people making policy tend to be in huge urban areas, and they have no idea what it's like being in a rural area. I have have bitter personal experience of this, having grown up in rural Gloucestershire. When you combine bits of information with ward-level statistics, you can actually 
relatively easily identify um, a group of families, and you can even identify individuals relatively easily. And one fight we had with the Youth Justice Board a couple of years ago um, was over re-identification of children who were supposedly anonymous on the Youth Justice Management Information System. They called the information anonymized because they didn't take address, uh, didn't take name, and they didn't take the full address. They took the set to postcode, the first half of the postcode and the first letter of the second half of the postcode on the database. And they took ethnicity as well. Now, within an urban area like London, Birmingham, Manchester, yeah, that's probably sufficient to mask most children on that system. But when I started looking, the, the Information Commissioner originally disagreed with me that this was identifiable data. And then when I pointed out that the ward level statistics, which correspond to that set to postcode pretty closely, if you went to the Welsh Valleys, there was one family from any ethnic minority living in that valley. So if their child was on that system, everybody would know at once it was this child. Um, and th the argument went on for a bit. Then I invited the information commissioner to go out of his office in Wilmslow and maybe sit in the local shopping centre and spot the three Bangladeshi families who lived in the area. Um, and he started um, saying, yes, perhaps this is something we need to look at again. Um, and then I actually put it into practice because I looked at this little ward in Gloucestershire called Dimmock in Kempsey, where my mother lived and, and also retired. And I got her to phone up her friend, who's the village gossip, and ask if she could send me the details um, of the Asian families living in the area. And it took less than 12 hours for Daisy, and she has been called Daisy, for Daisy to ring my mother back and say, yup, here's the address, here's the phone number, here's the details, they run the takeaway in, in this town and blah, blah, blah. And my mother immediately had full information. So I forward this forwarded this to the information commissioner and at that point he said yep this is identifiable data and the youth justice board then had to purge their system uh, of all all that information but it, it's just um it's data that would mean nothing in a town but as soon as you move to a different location um then re-identification is really quite frightening Oh, you need this, don't you, Bob? There you go. Okay, we've heard this word a lot. We're going to hear it lots more. Anonymization. <coughs> of course, anonymization, you know, we know what it's supposed to mean. In reality, and in many cases, as Terry's talked, talked about, um, it actually means one of a number of processes, and there are other processes that I've got up here, but these are some of the main ones. So there's de-identification, fairly obvious, you take out the identifying bits, fairly, fairly good. There is pseudonymization, which is you replace the identifying bits with something else. So you may put into a field that had something identifying uh, or identifiable, um, you may put uh, a random number. Yes, I mean, these are, this is at the field level. So say you have a, a whole string of fields, some of which may be identifying, for example, 
um, if you wanted to take out name, yeah, one way to pseudonymize is just to generate uh, random random strings and substitute in the random strings. You might do it in a slightly more sophisticated way if you want to be able to look it up yourself later and do it with a hash function so that you can essentially re-identify yourself internally. Uh, but of course, we also know that hash functions are quite vulnerable uh, now that uh, we've got yeah, really fast um, uh, GPU-based uh, systems crunching the hashes. But this bit of language here, this is contentious. This is coming up. This is coming up in the context of uh, national people database. This is coming up in the context of health records. It's popping up all over. This is language from um, the information commissioner's latest foray into anonymization, uh, and is something which the information commissioner's anonymization network up in Manchester will be looking at. Um, effectively anonymized. This is a sort of redefinition of convenience. This is saying that something is anonymized if you know, someone has to take a, what you know, has no meaning at all, unreasonable amount of effort to re-identify. Well, who do you know who the person is? Who do you know whether it's an unreasonable effort to them? How do you know if they're not going to you know, spend an unreasonable amount of effort? This effectively anonymized stuff is actually quite worrying. If it allows a whole bunch of stuff to sit through when people say, well, look, we've effectively anonymized this. And as Terry says, they may not have really understood the context into which they're putting that data. And also they may not have understood just what motivations or, 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 or abilities people have. And of course, then you do have what we've had all the while, aggregate statistics, aggregate data and statistics, which with which you can do a lot, with which you can design a lot, with which you can plan a lot. There is a good, solid history, mathematical history, uh, of doing this stuff. Yeah? All of these things are matters of convenience. If you do want to look into this a little bit more, I do strongly recommend that you actually go to Microsoft Research. They've done some really good research on this one. And look up something called differential privacy. This is uh, work that, roughly speaking, uh, is uh, a way for you to be able to get a measure of how anonymizable a particular data set or, or query would be, given that there are other data sets out there, and as now in, uh, we're in the era of big data, the more data that is out there, the more possible points that there are, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll get into a situation where we're trying to sort of find you know, what, the, what the risk is of potential re-identification. Just to sort of wind things up, I want to take you through a little quick thing, if it just, a, just, just a thought uh, about what the sorts of data that might be in the National People Database uh, that we might not think are particularly identifying might be. You've probably all heard of the DNA database and the fingerprint databases. Um, they all operate on a template, essentially a number of, um, a number of markers, in DNA's case, ten uh, markers doubled up because they're taking it one off each uh, chromosome. So you've got 20, essentially, uh, nuggets of data building a profile. And they add in gender, so you've got 21 um, nuggets of data. That is creating a profile, a unique profile for each individual. And with those nuggets of data, they reckon they can shoot into a database of millions of people and uniquely identify someone every time. They're incorrect, but we'll get into that later. 
fingerprint, uh, they just used to use 16 points of data. So this is the thing, the unique little markers and the combination of the unique little markers and the whorls and junctions and joints on your fingerprint. It used to be the standard was they needed 16 points, 16 unique markers uh, to, to get a good fingerprint match. That's actually gone down, um, bizarrely. Um, and you know, so we've got two, two instances of, so when you think, DNA gives you two sets of 10 side by side in a gender thing, bachelor profile. Fingerprint gives you 16 dropping to 12. So there we go. Mathis, the old fingerprint database, IDENT1, the new fingerprint database, NDNAD, it's a DNA database. This is the average sort of GCSEs and A-levels, okay? You are creating, you are constructing within the data, bits of data that themselves could be used in the way that you shoot a fingerprint profile into the DNA, uh, sorry, a fingerprint database uh, profile into NAFIS or IDENT, or a DNA profile into the National Day DNA database, is this is a permanently available set of data which is almost bound to have GCSEs and A-levels because you know, the end result is what you know, everyone's interested in, uh, you, know, you have a means that is probably going to allow you to do it. Now, I very much doubt that people have looked at the actual attainment as being a method of identifiability. It's possible, but if you start putting this stuff out there permanently, that's what you're gonna get. Yeah, well, no, it's a, a byte or whatever it is, a byte. Yeah, so, yeah, it's, I'm not trying to make any subtle data points here. Yeah, these would be uh, classically a number, I think on, I can't remember what they're on, on DNA database there. Uh, I think they're letters. And these are obviously they're letters between A to G plus X and O or what have you. I don't know what goes in there. It's giving you a it's giving you a way to explore a number space. So to come come back to the, the basic thing, I hope you agree um, that personal data is not open data. Um, I think I hope we've started to show that between Terry and I, there is a tension at least between the two things or the two ways that people may approach. Uh, passing on other people's data, sharing other people's data, publishing other people's data. You can take the obfuscation approach, call it anonymize, de-identify it, pseudonymize it, basically hide it in some sort of way, but not necessarily get consent. Or you could actually ask people if they're happy to have their data shared. Once you've had the consent of someone, the informed consent of someone, you can actually do something with their data. If you told them what you're going to do, would that not make that data higher value? The problem that this particular database has, of course, is that it hasn't, it didn't inform people what was going on. And you know, it just is the case that notification about this sort of stuff, especially after the fact, is not the same as the people knowing what's going on. Those little privacy notices that might have been at the bottom of that 17th sheet of paper you got when you registered your child 
at school, I bet you most people didn't read it. I read that sort of stuff. I'm a geek. Um, you know, putting you know, four pages onto the DfE website called National Pupil Database is not telling the nation that their children's data or their data is being um, collected on a termly basis from school systems. And just finally, really, you know, if you take out the stuff to make this stuff, you take out the, the, all of the data that makes this stuff re-identifiable, to make it genuinely anonymous, you start to beg the question, what useful is left? Yeah? If you could use the GCSEs and A-level results as a way to go in and try to identify people, and that is a risk, yeah, haven't tried it, but you know, someone might. Yeah, if you have to obscure that level of data, then what is the utility of the entire database? Anyway, thanks so much, and we're open to questions.